Welcome back for another episode of Games with Eric. Maybe this is the last time it'll be called Games with Eric. I don't know. I think that title is old and spent and tired and it got me to get started, but I think I need something a little more clever, a little bit more fun sounding instead of just Games with Eric. So uh, this may be the last time you hear the show previously known as Games with Eric by that title. Anyway, this episode we are going to talk about my radar, which is going to cover Iron Helm uh, again, and Return to Dark Tower, and uh, what I played. I played some Horrified, some Lovecraft Letters, and I touched briefly on uh, Detective City of Angels because I love that game. And then the feature is going to be me and my experience with casualty counters in war games. So let's jump in and sit back and enjoy, and uh, thanks for coming. So on my radar, this episode is uh, an update on Iron Helm. I ordered it last week through Game Crafter. Uh, I don't even think they're planning on shipping it until February 4th. So I ordered it probably January 15th, maybe earlier. And maybe no, I think it was even earlier than that. And the expected ship date was until the 4th. So I'm a little bummed, but it'll be like a little Kickstarter. You know, it'll show up unexpectedly. But given the way that um, GameCrafter sort of works as they're building it, it's sort of a print-on-demand. So they're building it specifically for me. And uh, I saw, you know, good for them, they showed like a backlog of projects. And I think there was a 1,000 or 1,100 things to complete before mine. So I was in the queue, and there's 1,100 other things to happen before me. So, you know, that's cool. You don't usually see that. Um, but hey, good for them. They they've got stuff going on. So, I just ordered the excuse me. I just ordered the base set, and uh, I didn't get any of the expansion packs or anything. I figured forty bucks for a small card game is enough. If I wanted to spend the six bucks on the foil pack, custom you know print on demand expansion packs, I could do that later if I really love the game. But uh, people seem to really really like the game, and it seems to give a good feel for what it is. So I'm excited about it. And that'll be coming in uh, shipping on the 4th. So when I get that, I will definitely get a play of that in and tell you uh, what I think about that. Something else that's on my radar is Return to Dark Tower. It's a Kickstarter by Restoration Games. I have the Fireball Island Restoration game. And it's pretty cool. It's also not hit my table more than three times because it's uh, the excitement and the fun of it. I don't want to say wears out, but it's just not that deep that you would want to do it more than once or twice as sort of a spectacle piece. So right now it's firmly in my Thanksgiving Day play where my son and my friend and I and whoever else is around the table will uh, play a little fireball Island and it's pretty neat. It's a lot of fun for that day. And then you box it up and put it on your shelf and then deal with it later. There's just better other things out there. And so it set me back a fair amount. I'm happy I did it because it's pretty neat. And it's one of those things where I'm glad I did it uh, just for the sake of owning it. 
But as far as gameplay goes, I don't think I got enough bang for the buck. Now, enter Dark Tower. This is a reprint or a remaking, a re-envisioning of the game, I think, Dark Tower from the 80s where it was, you know, there was this big tower in the middle where it was a computer tower and you press buttons on it and different sequences to have it, you know, participate in the game. And I never played it, uh, but it seemed cool and it made, it looked ominous. And, you know, it was one that I missed, sort of like Fireball Island when it was out in the 80s. I didn't, I never got it. So I missed out. So this is my chance to get back in the re-envisioned version. But it's expensive. And uh, you, you know, this, this tower is, you know, part mechanical, part computerized. So it's, you know, Bluetooth syncs to your phone. You need a, you need an app to run on your phone for combat. And then it works in conjunction with the board game that you play uh, around you. And uh, you know, uh, on the Kickstarter page, there's a preview game that I actually watched part of live with uh, the dudes from the Dice Tower and one of the people from Restoration Games. And the board looks beautiful. You know, it looks really neat. Uh, it looks a lot more complex. There's a lot more text than I guess I sus- than I thought there would be for a game from the 80s like this. Uh, but that's not a bad thing. It just means it's a little bit of a deeper game possibly, but two things sort of struck me. Um, well, I guess three things. One, I don't know, like I'm fine running games that have a link to some sort of digital part, like mansions of madness. I really like, and I'm a huge fan of that. So I can't knock having a digital component, but as far as points of failure go, you got a digital component and then you've got this mechanical battery powered tower and the the tower runs on i think three batteries and i think they said you'll get two or three plays games out of those three batteries so what do you do if you are out of batteries and you want to play well that just seems weird to have it's not like you can plug into a charger um, I guess if you plan ahead and you had, you know, rechargeable batteries, you could just swap them out. But um, I don't know. That seems a little iffy. And then in the demo or in the playthrough, obviously the prototype tower had some problems. So it didn't do what it was supposed to do, whether it was a logic error or a physical error. It wasn't determined, but it didn't do what it was supposed to do. And you see a cutaway of the tower and there's a lot of moving parts um, in the Kickstarter, there's like a cross section and it shows all the different gears and spins and options and lights. And, you know, there's a lot of work in parts that I don't know, you light on its side, funny, you, you bump it, maybe it just stops working. And then you're out, you know, 150 bucks, 250 bucks. If you pay all of that for the, uh, um, the game with the expansions. Now, maybe if there's like a debug version where, I don't know, there's like the app can tell you how it's supposed to rotate and the ex- expected behavior. So it's kind of an analog version. Maybe that's a way around it. But either way, you pay for the tower. The tower is a centerpiece and it didn't work. And, you know, I get it. It was a prototype. It's been bounced around the country through a bunch of play tests and everything. But it did remind me what that tower is and all the different points of failure in it. So... That was also, that was kind of iffy. And then the gameplay itself, it 
looked beautiful. It looked like there was fun stuff to do, but the dude who was running it from restoration, it felt very rote and uh, just like he was walking through a flow chart and he wasn't even that interested. It didn't feel like. So each turn I was like, do this and do this and you got to do this. And there's 15 warriors that are added here. And this goes over here and move this here and flip a card. And, you know, I don't have a problem doing that. But even, I don't know, it didn't feel like he was marketing it very well. Again, he probably had done it a million times that month for a bunch of ungrateful jerks like me. Uh, But all in all, it just sort of left me with a sour taste. And my lessons from my 2019, uh, two games in 2019 kicked in. And I got fired up to buy this. And I thought, this is beautiful. And I don't have the same restraints that I had in 2019. So maybe I'm just going to get it. And then I let all that die down for a day or two. And then I looked at it again and I realized it would probably never hit my table. If it did, it would hit it once or twice a year on holidays. And then I'm stuck with, you know, a bunch of giant boxes, a tower that's probably going to break and I'm out 250 bucks. So while it's on my radar, uh, I'm not going to engage with it. I just wanted to put it out there in case you do. And I don't mean to talk it down because it really looked nice. The components looked really nice. And if that's your jam, then I say do it. I like components and I like kind of cool. Like the tower looked great. Just for me, I don't think it's right. So anyway, uh, hey, check it out or don't. I guess that wasn't a great ringing endorsement for it. But uh, anyway, those are the two things that are on my radar. One of them I'm getting and I'm excited about. One of them I'm not getting but I'm excited about it. Eric, it's Rudy RPG Retrofit. This is for the episode before last where you talked about Horrified starring the Universal Monsters. I just wanted you to know that as a hip young boy in his 40s, I, I, I go into the hot topic quite often. They have cool clothes, man. Cool hoop earrings and gauges for my huge drooping ears i don't have gauges but universal monsters is a hip property apparently with like the young kids like they have whole sections in hot topic i swear of um you know the universal monsters the branded thing with the werewolf and you know based on that old the old movies and stuff so yeah i'm sure that's a push by universal but it is a thing and i think it does have a scene out there so don't knock it. All right. See ya. Thanks for the call, Rudy. And it is apropos as I did what I was threatening to do. And I picked up Horrified and I got uh, two sessions in. Played one solo to figure it out. And then the second game I played with my son and it didn't go over too poorly. It's a fun game. Probably around the fifth turn, you can eventually end up doing it with your eyes closed. But it it's a it's a good little solo game that's very accessible uh not solo game cooperative game that's very accessible and you can totally play it solo uh the the components are nice the map's nice the play is nice and options on your turn are varied uh because the different monsters that you fight against have different victory conditions that require you to go different parts of the map and collect different types of items and collect them and deliver them to different areas or perform other, you know, little tasks. 
And, you know, it's, it's fun. You know, it's a good way to sort of spend a, a rainy afternoon, which is when we did it. And we were playing against Dracula and uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon. So, you know, the, the base easy set. And it, it was not a challenge for us, really. It was once we figured it out, uh, it wasn't difficult at all. It was the victory was never in doubt. So I think if we played again, we would jump right to the uh, four monster variant. Um, and guessing that'll just be me playing the four monster variant because while he enjoyed it, he didn't hate his time. I don't think it was his favorite. I don't think he'd be coming back to play it again. So what I, I did want to mention is the the different monsters have different uh, victory conditions that you have to I don't know, do in order to defeat that monster and the, the purpose of the game or the, the goal of the game is to defeat all the monsters. You know, so Dracula, you have to kind of go to the four different corners of the map and collect enough uh, physical items to damage his coffins and, you know, you get rid of them that way. And um, you have to take certain items to the this camp in order to get the creature from the Black Lagoon to discover where his lair is to get rid of him. But one of them for the mummy is interesting. It was It's like a... Uh, one of those old, uh, you know, um, slide tile games where it's, you know, it's like a three by three grid and you have one open spot and you have one through eight and you have to slide the tiles around in order to get them in order. It's kind of the same thing where each item you discard, you can move these six scarabs around on this, this little board and you have to get them in order, you know, going in a circle in order to I don't know, to unlock the next level of the mummy or banish the mummy. And I don't know, I thought that was kind of a, a fun little clever thing where it's it's the game, but it's also a game within a game. And uh, I don't know, it's just a fun little thematic note. So all in all, I enjoy Horrified. Um, I don't know how often it will get back out to the table, to be honest. Maybe Halloween, maybe with a few drinks, maybe very low buy-in where you're doing other things but it's not so much that you want to spend a lot of time like you don't set it up like oh this is going to be a meaty game it's a little bit too long for filler and it's a little bit too long or a little bit too short for a, a game game for for what it is so anyway i like it i'll probably play it again mm, happy that i got any game out of my son with it so i'll take that as a win and worth the the price of admission, but I'll, I'm sure it'll come out again. So anyway, that was horrified. Oh, I also asked him about the monsters and he didn't really know or care much about any of them. So he doesn't spend a lot of time in hot, hot topic. Um, and usually we were, we were actually watching a history of horror on shutter, I think. And we were watching the zombie one and they were talking about how, you know, Frankenstein is the original zombie sort of and every time they showed clips of frankenstein he was just laughing so you know it's uh it's not a thing for him but what can you do uh so you're probably sick and tired of hearing both about horrified as well as lovecraft letters and love letter in general but i got lovecraft letters and it has been a hit uh, we've played my wife my son and i have played it a bunch and it's very surprising that i really kind of got them both playing not because i didn't think they would enjoy it but because the theme is so very much me so what they do with uh lovecraft letters is, you, is basically it's it's uh, a deck of love letter but then they have madness versions of 
all the different numbers. So the one is uh, our investigators, right? The one card where you get to guess what somebody else has is investigators. But then the madness version of that is a single card, which is the, um, oh my gosh, I can't even think of uh, the the lizard critters. Um, wow. <laughs> Deep ones. My God, I do not know why I couldn't think of that. Anyway, so uh, there'll be a Deep Ones card. And what the Deep Ones is, is it plays just like an investigator card. But it has two abilities where the second ability is an insane ability. And in this particular case, the insane ability is um, if uh, you call a player and if they have a one or an investigator, they are eliminated. Just like... Um, if you were to call them out now, investigators typically can't call out other investigators, but the deep one card, you can call out investigators. Then if you don't get an investigator, you get to pick another card uh, and try again. So all of the numbers have an insanity version of it. So one is a deep one, two, I can't, oh, two is um, some sort of a, a mead, a space mead, I think. Three is a hound of Tindalos. Four is a book of Ebon. Six is Nyarlathotep. Um, so they all have like an insanity version. So the first time you play an insane version, you can only use the same set of rules. You, you don't get the insanity version. Then the second time around, when it's your turn, uh, you are now insane, which means you can play any card as in the insane version or the normal version. Now, the trick with that is on your turn, you basically do a sanity check. So when you draw a card for your turn, first you draw a card for each insane card that you have in front of you. And if any of them come up insane, insane you're out of, the t out of the round. If they all come up sane, then you draw as normal and you can play as normal. So it's really fun. There's a good push-your-luck dynamic to it. And uh, depending on if you go sane or insane, uh, if you win the round, you either win a sane victory or an insane victory. You need two sane victories to win the game, or you need three insane victories. So chances are you're going to have a mixture of the two, but uh, it's easier to win if you are a sane person. But it's harder to win a round if you are a sane person because the other cards are just more powerful. So it's a lot of fun, and it's... Uh, it's captured the the three of us in a way that I did not expect. It plays quickly, and it there is a little bit of control. Uh, when you're playing two-player, it feels really out of control. But with three players, you sort of, just like with Love Letter in general, you start to learn where the, the slight amount of control comes into play. And I think a better Love Letter player will win more often than a less experienced one. Same thing goes with this game. I think it feels random and crazy at first, and then eventually you settle in and get how the system works and where to take your chances. So it is totally worth it. I would highly recommend it. It's a little expensive for what it is, but you get oversized cards, like tarot-sized cards, and it comes with sleeves, uh, branded sleeves for those tarot cards. So it's like uh, you get these kind of cool... Uh, Lovecraft. It looks like an envelope with a wax seal on it with a little tentacle coming out of it, uh, a cover for all the cards. So 
it's it's going to be my go-to love letter. You know, Christmas time, letters to Santa. Uh, Non-Christmas time, I think this is going to be great fun. I think it goes up to about six players now. So it expands because it adds more cards to the deck. So totally worth it. I would highly recommend picking it up. So that's really what I've been playing the past couple weeks here is Horrified and Lovecraft Letters. And I have, I finally got my copy and I have played Detective City of Angels and I'm going to save that for the next episode because I don't want to get into it and make this episode too long. But man, do I love that game. That is an all-star. That's out of the park. If you can get a copy, I would highly recommend it. But I'll talk about it next time. So anyway, that's what I've been playing. So this week's feature piece is on... Uh, casualty counters in war games and by counters i mean uh, not uh, not like chits not like chit counters uh but actually you know counters that represent fallen soldiers um i try and play with casualty counters whenever i can and uh let's uh let's take a step back and see how i got to where i am and maybe why i want to play with casualty counters so uh, I think it started back when I was playing with my G.I. Joes and my Star Wars battles. Um, I would set up epic battlefields that spanned, you know, hallways and kitchen floors and refrigerators and kitchen tables and bathrooms and, you know, living rooms where uh, there, like, I had all sorts of stuff happening. I had infiltration. I had secret missions. I had open warfare. You know, I was a boy programmed to play war, so I was playing war with my with my dudes, and uh, I had accumulated enough of these guys that when one of them fell, uh, I could just leave them out. And so, rather than like having that person pop up someplace else, everybody was unique. And when, except maybe stormtroopers or like cobra troopers, but by and large, uh, when they fell on the battlefield, that's where they were. And I don't know if that was just a matter of me being messy or uh, something more to it. But I always just like leaving them out. So if you got popped, that's where you were. And uh, fast forward a little bit to the old games workshop models. Um, you know, like the uh, first edition Warhammer Fantasy Battle and sort of their fantasy lines. Super great models. I love the aesthetic. I love the style. It was a little bit sort of I don't know, exaggerated in, in shape, a little bit less realistic. So it was more cartoony, more fantasy feel. Um, so I really liked those models, that, those model lines. And, you know, when I started buying white dwarfs, I started, you know, seeing these like new releases where they would, you know, they'd have a whole page of these painted models on sort of a terrace step with a, you know, a code next to each one or, or a name or something. So you knew which one you wanted to call the mail order in, in order. And a lot of these lines had like one or two casualties and, you know, like berserkers or what have you. And they'd be all these cool berserkers in different poses. And there'd be one fallen berserker. And I always thought, man, that's cool. But why? Why would you want that? What would you use that for? Uh, I was just started getting into mass battles, uh, you know, Warhammer and 40K and stuff. And there was always those one or two, but I never knew how you were supposed to use them. There weren't any rules for them. And I'm guessing it was for little vignettes or something. But if you had a game of 40K, you know, you'd lose a whole squad of 10 Imperial Guard and they just poof, they'd be they'd be gone from the board, right? You wouldn't buy 10 casualties and put them out there. 
So same thing with Blood Bowl, right? In Blood Bowl, you would get knocked down and, you know, your character would get or your, your player would get knocked down either face down or on their back. Then they'd get up and play or they were knocked out of the game. I guess you could use a casualty counter if they got, you know, put into the dead and injured box. You could throw them in there. But, you know, what's the point of that? They're already sort of representationally dead or injured. Um, so I was always intrigued and I always thought how I would end up using these things. And that was sort of before skirmish games were maybe a thing that I was aware of. Um, I could see them being used in skirmish games, you know, when we would play, um, you know, war bands out of the realms of chaos books for uh, Warhammer fantasy battle, you know, the model count was small enough, but it was so diverse, you know, if you, you could have a minotaur and a goblin and a chaos wizard and, you know, three swordsmen well you wouldn't have casualty counters for for each of those so i you know i don't know how you would end up using them but i but they were always interesting to me so fast forward later and i discovered a game called battle cry which was avalon hill at the time it was the richard borg i think it's borg not berg yeah richard borg um basically his first commands and colors game so Memoir 44, uh, Battle Cry, Commands and Colors Ancients, Commands and Colors Napoleonics. But his first one, I think the first published one was this Battle Cry, which was the American Civil War. And I was at Gen Con 2000, 2003. I only went twice, but it was one of those. And I think in the library, you could check out, this, you know, check out games. And uh, I checked out Battle Cry and I was absolutely ridiculously hooked. I think I spent the majority of that Gen Con just playing Battle Cry. And I think I picked up a copy of it and it barely fit in my luggage on the way back. But I just loved it. I loved everything about it. it it's very me. You get a deck of cards, you do the best with what you can. You try to maneuver your guys on the, the, the battlefield, but you can't always do what you want. It's very much everything that I like in a game. And I just loved it. So much so uh, when I. I, I went to Europe with a buddy of mine and we took a train all over Europe for, I don't know, half a month or something, sort of as extended graduation um, celebration. And uh, I created a magnetized version of Battle Cry. So I got a sh piece of sheet metal and I put a hex grid on it and uh, we used um, wet erase markers to draw the terrain and then i made uh, little chits with uh, rotating damage on them and magnetized those and took the deck of cards and the battle dice and we played the hell out of gen out of uh, battle cry all throughout europe hotel rooms on the train you know any any amount of downtime we had we, we played some battle cry so it was it was pretty cool so i was into it um but what i noticed was that you know you would play and you'd have these two huge armies and you go, oh my god look at this this is some big epic battle and uh as the game progressed and got to the end these units were so you know in in these games you you typically have four uh infantry pieces for like an infantry unit so four little models and as you take damage uh you remove a model from the board so when the fourth one is removed then effectively you get a victory point for defeating a unit so at the end of the game you'd have a lot of these weakened units you know, one or two models floating around the board or just wiped out units. So let's say you start with 10 units, you might have, you know, five that are weakened, uh, you know, four that are missing and and one that's full. So you, you're down to maybe half of your, you know, individual soldiers on the board or at the end of the game, right? The game's over and you sort of look at the board and it seems real sparse. Like it wasn't like, what was the big kerfuffle 
over. There's just a few, a few, a few fighting dudes on the board. So then one day I just had this thought that I would, uh, I had some, I had this bag of, uh, you know, glass beads that we would use for, um, life counters for magic, the gathering. And I had a, a, like a bunch of red ones and a bunch of black ones. And we started swapping out, uh, fallen pieces with a glass bead. So the red blooded Americans would get a red, um, or the, the, the red blooded North would get a red dot and the, uh, the cold black hearted, uh, Confederates would get a, uh, a black one. So red for the North black and black for the South. And, and as you sort of, uh, played out the game, you then sort of at the end of the game, you felt like there was a lot more happening because you would see this board with all of these pieces that would sort of tell you where the units had fallen. And you got an idea of where the worst fighting was. And you could sort of, it, it, it played into my storytelling concept that I like to find in games. And you would see the flashpoints and you would see, ah, oh, well, this guy got picked apart over here. He didn't do anything. So maybe I could use him better next time or boy, this really is where the important stuff happened. Maybe next time I could throw more horses at it to try to break through or what have you. But also it sort of started touching on the whole horrors of war thing for me just to see the board laid out there. For some reason, it, it gave me an emotional, you know, mental, uh, intellectual connection to this time period in this war that I don't, ha you know, I didn't have like a real strong connection with. Like I don't, I did some historical, you know, education on the American Civil War. Um, you know, I'd seen movies, right? The the fallout, you sort of learn the, the, the politics and legislative side in school. Some on the battles, you know, some on uh, Ken Burns's uh, great documentary with the, you know, all of, all of that good stuff. Uh, I'm laughing because there's one, the way he says things, there's this one joke that we always talked about, which was Chickamauga Creek, the uh, river of death. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. So I suddenly started feeling this connection where like I had, uh, I, I could appreciate a time period or at least appreciate like a sacrifice or like a horrible moment in time while I was sort of playing around with these little toy soldiers. So that's where it started with Battlecry. Then I discovered a game called PBI, which was uh, called Poor Bloody Infantry, which is a, a UK-based, made by a UK-based company called Peter Pig, I think. Uh, at least Peter Pig makes the 15 millimeter models. But um, PBI was a, it's a grid-based miniatures game. So you basically get a, a whatever board you're going to fight on, a four by four, and you, you divvy it up into one foot square spaces and movement moves goes on the spaces and all of that. And it's 15 millimeter and you base three guys to a base. And anyway, that's not important, but part of the rules uh, are casualties. So when you have a square that takes casualties, you'll actually leave behind casualty counters that are purposeful to the game for morale. So if you start accumulating too many casualty counters in a space with not enough um, healthy units, you know, certain things, certain bad things can happen. You can be forced to retreat. So you'll need to sort of roll command to remove those casualties. Right. But the, so it's a, it's a great game. It's a fun game. But the part that was an aha moment for me was, oh my goodness, 
15 millimeter military models make casualty counters and you can buy them in bulk. So Peter Pig makes 15 mil casualties for World War I, World War II, American Civil War, all of their stuff, probably all of their black powder stuff and pirates and, you know, uh, modern and all of that. But you buy them and it's not like there's one, you buy a bag of eight, so eight casualties. So uh, I got real excited about that and uh, wanted to recreate that battle cry experience, but using these 15 millimeter models. And I think the battle cry figures are roughly 15 mil, but I wanted to expand this. So I, I basically bought um, a whole bunch of foam hexes and I can't think of the company that makes them, but it's for like those GHQ teeny tiny tanks. Again, I don't even remember that one scale, I think. And the intent was you would have these massive battles, but these hexes you could model specifically for the different types of terrain. And it was kind of like a weird transition between hex encounter and miniatures. And I think that was where it came from. But you could build these sort of really interesting looking war game boards using these modeled foam hexes. Uh, just you, the only thing that was holding you back was your imagination and the amount of work you put into them. But I was using them just as sort of uh, terrained hexes to then allow me to play Battlecry or Memoir 44, which is the World War II version of the Command and Colors game, uh, along with these 15 millimeter models so that I could explicitly get casualties into my games and make the boards look nicer and uh, feel like I'm playing a, a miniatures game instead of just a board game. So I bought them all and I I made rivers and I made hills and I made all sorts of stuff. And I started to get uh, my armies of uh, Civil War and World War II stuff. I just ripped off all the the uh, the models off my triple-based stuff for PBI. So I started to build these forces out and I never finished. So I think I have all the hexes you need, but I never made my armies. So I have all these casualties. I have these half-made, um, uh, you know, American Civil War armies. I have this like scattered uh, World War II stuff, and I never quite got to what I wanted, which was to, to to have that casualty counter, you know, one soldier, one casualty when they get removed. Experience. Uh, so enter the Great War, which ended up being another Richard Borg commands and colors game about world war one. And, uh, I decided that this was it. And, uh, twice a year, all of my old school friends who are still my current friends get together for like dad's either dad's weekend. We ran a house on the beach, um, in Cayucos, California. Maybe I've said too much. Um, lifted privacy gone. Uh, anyway, or we go to Kublacon. So that's twice a year. So for a while, we were trying, at least I was, trying to have some sort of really cool project in preparation for playing at one of these. And now that I think about it, uh, the only one I think possibly I did to completion was with uh, 
a friend of mine and I made a 3D version of an Aliens game from Leading Edge games, I think. Anyway, it was an old Aliens game based on the movie. And there's the first scenario in this game is the reactor room. And it's fantastic. It's a great, great game, great convention game, great quick play co-op game against the, the aliens. So we made a 3D version of it once. And that either started the whole thing where I wanted to do something for each one of these events, something kind of cool and something big. And he, he he got the miniatures and painted them. And I got a bunch of old hero clicks aliens models and rebase them and so it's it's a really cool uh it's a cool game but anyway uh so i thought you know what for the next gathering i'm gonna make i'm gonna get this great war set completed so i did uh i painted all uh, all the models are 15 millimeter i think it's from plastic soldier company they actually made the models for the game that came in the game so they're they're decent 15 mil world war one models so I painted all of those up. I based them all. I, I put, you know, uh, sand on the bases and all of that. They're all on uh, washers. So they have the plastic models have weight. And I did casualty counters for everything. I, I have more than enough to match one for one for virtually any of the battles. And I think enough that you could almost wipe out a full side uh, which happens a fair amount in this game, wipe out a full side and have casualties for all the different, uh, for every removed model, uh, model soldier. So lo and behold, I finished it. I did it. I brought it. I think we played two games of it. And then we're like, all right, well, it's time to play some other stuff. But I did it. I finally got my experience of a full set of casualties. And uh, I am extremely satisfied. Um Right now I'm making forces and gathering terrain for 15 millimeter chain of command, which is a great rule set by two fat lardies. Um, I have all the train, I have all the trees. I, you know, I've got an American force, a German force. I'm trying to work on my British paras and uh, I'm going to use the world war two casualties for it. But uh, long story short. So now how I got to where I am and my experience getting here, I find a lot of value in the casualties and again i think i talked about it a little bit with battle cry but for some reason it's like a way for me to honor or identify with or um respect the sacrifices that all of the the fallen soldiers throughout history have made for me to then sit back and play games uh with their you know grouped memory um i you know i don't i don't know why um and it's not like i have this huge moment every time i play and i have to have a memorial but it just helps me in the back of my mind think about it um to let the whole weight of what i'm doing land a little bit more for me so when world war one battle is over and the entire board is full of you know, casualties that have been trying to run across no man's land to get to the other trenches and all the failed attempts at different points. It just sort of makes those, I don't know, those soldiers that had to do the exact same thing at, you know, 18 years old, they're more than just a, you know, a body on a battlefield hundred years ago. 
um, they sort of live on in my games, I guess. Uh, it, it's weird. And it, it, uh, I'm sort of just working my way through it as we, we speak right here. But, but I think that's why I do it is it's a little bit to memorialize. It's a little bit to honor. It's a little bit to show respect. Um, it's a little bit to help me not lose sight that, uh, yes, I'm playing a game. It's a game about, you know, at its very root, killing more than your enemy. And I don't want that to be lost or trivialized um, all the time. That's not to say if I play a board war game where you eliminate a counter, but counters removed. Um, I'm not going to, you know, put dead counters in my, you know, ASL starter kit games. It's just, you know, miniatures games are sort of a little bit more about blurring that line between the hobby and visuals and game and all of that. So that's why I do it. I plan to do it wherever I can. Um, one of the reasons I went 15 millimeter was I thought it would be too expensive to get casualty counters for 28 millimeter, uh, chain of command. Plus I had a bunch of 15 mils already, but I think 15 millimeters is perfect for the casualties cause you can, it's affordable. And, uh, I don't know that there are a lot of 28 millimeter historical casualties out there, but I think the cost would just be prohibitive to do it. So Anyway, uh, long rambling story uh, wrapped up here. I like casualties. I'm wondering if anybody else uses them the same way that I do. I don't know that I've ever seen anybody use them. I've not. No, that's not true. I saw one game at Kublai Khan where it was like Normandy, and the guy had a uh, like a bag full of casualties. So it was the whole you know beach assault and i remember him using casualties like he, he just reached into a bag and like pulled out handfuls like oh well this unit's gone i'll just take this out and i'll lay a bunch of casualties down and for some reason i didn't get to stay and really look at it but uh that that was the only other time i think i've ever seen anybody use casualties in the way that that i sort of use them so anyway um that's 20 minutes of uh, me talking about casualty counters I have no, I would really like to hear anybody's thoughts on it. Um, I really want to know if I'm twisted or uh, if any of what I'm saying resonates because it, it seems to resonate with me. And, and the more I use them, the more I appreciate them and the more I appreciate the whole subject uh, that I'm playing. So anyway, wrap it up. That's the end of uh, Casualties. All right, that wraps up another one. Thanks for hanging out with me. Thanks for listening to me. And if you have any ideas or thoughts or comments or concerns or questions or critiques or uh, just general what's upness, leave me a message. Give me a call through uh, Anchor. Leave me a message. And uh, I'd love to hear from you. So next time, we're probably going to get into Detective uh, City of Angels because that game is rad. And um, I might finally talk about my session, my D&D session, playing uh, with my son and uh, the trials and tribulations and adventures and excitement that I've had trying to get that going and basically get myself back into DMing. So until next time, uh, this has been Eric with Games with Eric, or at least possibly the last time. So if you have a better idea for a name, let me know. I'm working on it. All right, guys. Thanks. Catch you later.